You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for July 2022. It has been a surprisingly busy month at TCTMD for midsummer. I'll tell you in a moment or two about some of the wide-ranging stories we tackled in July. What I realized when a BMJ paper caught my eye mid-month was that it's been exactly one year since Vikyam Boskert was my guest on the podcast to talk about myocarditis and COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Boskert and colleagues had written a review on the prevalence, possible mechanisms, and clinical management of what was at the time a really perplexing and worrisome signal. She came on the podcast to put all of that in perspective. Flash forward one year, and we know much more than we did in July 2021, but still not quite as much as we'd like. This month, I invited three authors of that BMJ paper to bring us up to date with the data in this space. My guests today are Jennifer Pillay, first author on this document, and Lisa Hartling, senior author, both of whom are from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. We are joined by co-author and cardiologist Ian Patterson of the Alberta Heart Institute. Thank you all for joining me on the Heart Sounds podcast. You know, I and several of the other journalists at TCTMD have been writing about myocarditis and pericarditis as rare potential side effects of COVID-19 vaccines for, I think it's got to be 15 months now. All three of your authors on a new paper in the VMJ, however, and it's called a living evidence synthesis and review. Lisa, given the enormous amount of observational data already published, why was there a need to try to to collate this to kind of pull all this together? Yeah, I think it's precisely because of the enormous amount of studies uh, and research that this review is critically important. So just to put that in context, when we did our first literature search back in November, we identified close to 3,500 studies to screen. Just two months later, we identified another 2,000. So certainly the the literature um, around this topic is uh, growing very quickly. Why the review is important is because it brings together all of the studies to create a more complete picture of this phenomenon. And reviews also help to reconcile any differences that readers may find across different studies. So there's always a risk of deriving conclusions from a single study or a a subset of studies. And further, the review and the growing number of studies allows us to delve into more details and some of the nuances that weren't necessarily apparent in the early case series and case reports. So for an example, the earlier case reports or case series combined myocarditis and pericarditis. And we found that um, those presentations and the demographics differ quite a bit. And so moving forward, we only looked at data that isolated those conditions. And that's only possible as we start to see more more science emerge. And we've also seen over time that the scientific rigor has improved. Um, So the early research was case reports and case series, which are really important to flag that a problem exists. However, we weren't able to fully understand the extent of the problem until we had those larger studies and population-based studies to calculate true incidence rates and really identify if this was a concern beyond the baseline incidence of myocarditis that we would typically see. More and larger studies are always important to see patterns, um, and we've started to see more patterns around, for example, second dose, 
the interval between dosing, comparing the different vaccines, and some of these details and nuances weren't uh, apparent either in the earlier studies or when you're just looking at individual studies. As we see more studies emerge, they're becoming more refined. Uh, for instance, some will only focus on verified cases and they're becoming more sophisticated. So some studies now have control groups, which again is essential, and larger studies. So we need adequate sample size to do analyses and to control for certain variables to really tease out what some of the risk factors are. Jennifer, I was gonna give you the chance to speak to this living evidence synthesis because we have seen this in other areas that the whole COVID-19 field has moved so quickly. I've seen more and more of these documents that are sort of kept up and I assume that's the plan with this or maybe this isn't the first iteration. I think it is though. Yeah, this was the publication was based on uh, one update. So an original review, we would call it as, as well as one search update in January we did. So Lisa mentioned November and then we did one in January as well. And of course, to get it publication, published and peer reviewed by M5, <laughs> there's extensive peer review for this, this manuscript. You know, we had to kind of choose a point to, you know, identify uh, what data we were going to use. But since then we have, and we're continually updating the evidence. The manuscript has a link to the website where we are going to be maintaining uh, future updates as well. But of course, just to get something published, make sure people are aware that we're undertaking this uh, research, it was important to get it published uh, at one time point. Yeah, It's hard to maintain ongoing. And with this topic, of course, living, we would love to, of course, do searches every week, or, or but there's just so much <laughs> literature that we have to kind of do it you know, periodically, but fairly frequently. We're doing it about every three months right now. Okay, spoken like a two researcher that you <laughs> researcher that you want to jump in and keep doing this. Ian, I'd like to turn to you because as a cardiologist yourself, I do feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure myocarditis is, is very much on the radar now of practicing cardiologists and academic cardiologists as a possible side effect of the COVID vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines. What are the kind of key pieces in this that might be new to people that have been trying to keep up on this? What sort of things can they use for you know, parents that are coming to them with concerns or young patients or referrals from GPs and that type of thing? Are there, are there key takeaways in here that can actually be put into action? Yeah, you're right that uh, you know, myocarditis is certainly one of the potential side effects that we need to discuss with patients who have questions about the vaccine. And in my case, when I'm talking to cardiac patients uh, that, you know, this, who have pre-existing cardiac disease, this is something that comes up uh, uh, for sure. However, I, for me as a cardiologist who, who's seeing these patients, that I think the key messages which uh, our work helps to confirm is that myocarditis related to mRNA vaccine is actually a very rare side effect of the vaccine. Uh, you know, we're talking about in most cases, uh, this looks like a risk that's less than 20 per million doses. Uh, um, so, so that would be my first take home message is that number one, it's a very rare uh, um, side effect. The second take home message is that the group of patients that seems to be the, at highest risk uh, seem to be patients in young males and, and adolescent males. And there we're talking about a risk up to about 145, 150 uh, cases per million doses. So again, the risk is very, very low, but it appears to be higher in young males and young adolescent males. In terms of uh, other important take-home messages, 
the myocarditis related to the vaccine is self-limiting. So patients, at least on the short term, tend to do very well. In the, in the review that we conducted, many patients were observed in hospital for a very short period of time, and they were discharged without any apparent uh, sequelae. Uh, so, so it tends to be what we would call self-limiting problems. So it tends to not pose a, a major health risk to the individual. This being said, though, we, do, we don't have a lot of information yet about long-term outcomes for patients. So that's certainly a future area of study. Yes, that was an issue raised in the editorial. And I do think that that's another thing we've seen this whole pandemic long has been so much quick publications on on short-term results, but getting to see some of that later follow-up and potentially imaging studies, I know there'll be a lot of people interested in seeing that. Jennifer and Lisa, I'm pretty sure that will be part of your ongoing review as if the data comes out. That wasn't fair. I just directed that to both of you. But Lisa, is that something you're planning to do is track some of the later? Certainly, that is one of our our key questions in our review will be to continue to uh, look at those longer term outcomes. Early on, of course, there wasn't the time to to follow up those patients to to see the long term outcomes. So we are starting to see some of that emerge. And we we expect that there there will be more of that coming out that we will certainly be looking for in our, our review and including in our review. And is that in line so far with the idea that this is self-limiting, that it's it's not along, it's not leaving any lasting damage on the heart? Too soon to say, perhaps. I think so. I'll, I'll just jump in as Jennifer. I, th- I think so. We've got some findings with about three months follow-up coming into our kind of more recent search. Uh, so it's really, you know, quite in, in terms of these conditions and when the long-term effects seem to happen, Ian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think typically we need to wait a year or even a few years to potentially find out longer-term kind of more serious consequences. So it will take a while, unfortunately. Sure, that makes sense. TCTMD is focused almost exclusively on cardiovascular disease in other years, but certainly early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, we were, at least for a time, writing almost exclusively about pandemic-related topics. We just felt that that's what all clinicians were interested in, even if heart disease remains a number one killer. But as time has gone on, you know, we've really seen how much these fields have converged so that you have reached this point where both the virus itself, either directly or indirectly, as well as different vaccines we're using to protect against it are leading to hospital admissions for cardiovascular damage in some form. Ian, can you put that in perspective for us? And I appreciate this is beyond the bounds of of the paper you've just published, but you know, if we're trying to weigh the risks of vaccines against the risks of catching COVID and what might happen as a result, how do physicians advise patients on that? We've certainly seen it become more and more polarizing with time. Yeah, and that's that's a very important discussion. There's actually been some nice work on this. There's some work published uh, about a year ago in circulation by uh, author Boskert, where they looked at you know what would be some of the relative benefits in terms of preventing uh, COVID-related hospitalizations versus uh, risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. And there's some very nice graphs and figures which demonstrate that the potential benefits from preventing morbidity and mortality from COVID, the, the virus, far outweigh any risks from the vaccine. And uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the, really the risk from the vaccine is quite low and the, and the benefits really do appear to far outweigh the risks. Uh, I guess the one caveat is uh, a lot of this information was based on some of the earlier variants of, of the virus, the more recent variant, uh, Omicron, we don't know as well the risk in terms of 
hospitalization or morbidity mortality, but it, people haven't done that type of work in depth comparing the risk of that version of the virus compared to uh, the vaccine. But there's still reason to believe that that the vaccine would benefit individuals far more than any risk uh, from the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, we've, as I say, we've covered so many of these papers in different forms, the same papers that you all reviewed for this review document, but it all has been so consistent and pointing in the same direction. It's been really interesting to see the, the information unfold and then the other stories corroborating initial signals and honing down the group at risk. It's been fascinating as a journalist to cover that. Uh, Jennifer, you took the lead on this. What do you hope people will take away from this particular document and those to come? You know, as we've mentioned, you know, it is a rare, but, you know, appears to be a consistent uh, side effect from the vaccine, particularly in, you know, certain uh, segments of the population, like Ian mentioned. I think, though, that looking at how, you know, you see the word and, and it's it's very kind of scary for many people without realizing that, you know, looking at the clinical course is another important factor that the public doesn't maybe necessarily have enough information to use that, you know, it is fairly mild self-limiting and looking at the benefits and the risks, those multiple factors that need to come into play when, when making either broad statements or um, decision-making for individuals and clinicians as well. Sure. Lisa, as senior author, I'll let you jump in there too, because this is something you've been focused on for decades in your career. It's that sort of quality of the evidence and then how to draw recommendations from that. But what would you like people to take from this particular document and those to come? I think um, it's really important to realize that we've done a thorough review of the literature and so brought all of the literature together. Um, I think there's a lot of concerns regarding misinformation in the context of the pandemic, in the context of the vaccine. So I would hope that people see this as a, a comprehensive and rigorous assessment of what's out there. And I also did want to mention that we also did involve some patient partners and so those patient partners had lived experience with relations who were either affected or, or considered high risk. And they have helped us also put the key messages into context and help us also develop a plain language summary. So I hope that, you know, that it's accessible to parents and others making decisions around this. No, that's great. I think that's such an important piece is having that patient involvement, because certainly the sort of sense of a widening gap between the science, the scientists and the public has been sort of a hallmark of this pandemic, unfortunately. So I will let people know that they can find that if they need a sort of um, patient-focused review of what the three of you and your co-authors have done. Thank you, all three of you, for coming on the Heart Sounds podcast and telling us a bit about this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank Take you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. If you want to check for updates in this living review, go to the COVID End website at www.mcmasterforum.org slash networks slash COVID hyphen end. That is also where you can find those plain language summaries for patients. It is always the case when I do these single focus episodes for the podcast that I end up wanting to also tell you about so much other great TCTMD news and features from recent weeks. 
Caitlin Cox, for example, did a deep dive into two controversial areas that have been making waves for years. One story looked at a propensity-matched analysis of acute MI patients complicated by cardiogenic shock, showing that those supported by Impella, as opposed to an intra-aortic balloon pump during their time in hospital, had worse outcomes as much as one year later. Those of you who have been eagerly awaiting randomized data to solve this once and for all will want to check that out. Caitlin's other story covered a fascinating biomarker analysis from Reduceit. That, you'll recall, was the pivotal trial that led to the approval of acosapent ethyl for preventing events in people with ASCVD. This analysis reopens the debate as to whether the mineral oil comparator truly was inert and neutral in the trial. These biomarker data would suggest it was not. Also on the ASCVD front, Michael O'Reardon covered an analysis looking at the extent to which the new primary prevention guidelines in Europe from last year appear to exclude people from starting on a statin. These are typically folks who would be targeted for lipid lowering by other international guidelines. If you want to get a handle on what the latest proposed CMS cuts will mean to cardiologists and cardiac surgeons in the US, look no further than Yael Maxwell's story. The quick version? It's not great news if you're a heart specialist. A couple more hot news items. Laura McEwen covered a paper looking at the dominant risk factors in COVID-positive patients admitted for STEMI, while Todd Neal looked into research probing blood viscosity as a possible reason for clotting risk in COVID-19 and what that might mean for therapeutics. I myself finally had time to write up a feature story I've been mulling since the ESC heart failure meeting last spring, looking at what hopes still linger for intraatrial shunts in HEFPEF. I also did a story on the U.S. dibutamine shortage and what that means for hospitals and patients around the country. And last but not least, if you search murder on TCTMD, you'll find my story on Turkey's countrywide doctor's strike after the killing of a cardiologist by a patient's family member. The struggle among Turkish healthcare workers for a safer work environment is unique and horrific, but also, I think, emblematic of the growing violence doctors and allied health workers are facing all over the world. I hope you'll seek out that story and others too at tctmd.com. There's much more I'd love to tell you about on TCTMD, but hopefully by now you are subscribing to our twice weekly newsletter. Registration for the website is free and my humble opinion is that you won't find better, more timely coverage of all things cardiovascular anywhere else on the web. That will be all the more important next month when I and several of the team head off to cover the ESC meeting in Barcelona, COVID permitting. Hopefully you will choose our coverage to keep you up to speed. Thank you to all my colleagues for their hard work every day and thank you for tuning into Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD, featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 